How many of the thousands of people who were either inside Scotiabank Place last night or outside of Jurassic Park in Toronto, how many of them do you think are awake right now? We're trying to get our hands on one of them, at least our voices on one of them. We'll see if we can do that before 3 o'clock. Somebody who was in the building last night and who has been a massive Raptors fan for a while. We'll take you back in just a moment. It worked again. For our good buddy Matt Weaver from Country 104. If you missed it yesterday, the things that Matt Weaver will do before the Raptors play, got that coming up in just a moment. But congratulations to them. What we are witnessing, and this is one of those real attractions to sport, what we are witnessing right now could easily be this moment that teams can go through. And it doesn't always happen. But there is a moment where all of a sudden everybody believes, yeah, you know, this is possible. Wayne Merrick was a member of the New York Islanders when they won Stanley Cups in the early 80s. And right before they won their first Stanley Cup, it wasn't even right before, but Wayne tells the story of it being about February. And the Islanders had played the Minnesota North Stars, who were a very good team. And they had beaten them. And they came back into the dressing room, and nobody was really saying anything. Everybody was just kind of looking around thinking, you know what, if we can beat them I I think we can beat anybody and no doubt the Toronto Raptors came into their locker room last night and if they hadn't felt the feeling before to look around and say this one was the best team that we have to play this is the two-time defending champion this is a team that's been to the finals five years in a row this is a team that's won three of the last four championships we just beat them we could do that again. This, It all of a sudden becomes tangible. And the Raptors were even showing signs of that before they probably got into their locker room. Just when you're, when you're around that setting, when you're around that feeling, there is just this ability to believe you can do more than you actually would. Any kind of that self-doubt. You always know that little voice that's in your head when you're trying to do something big or when you're trying to do something important. Sometimes it's there. And it's saying, yeah, I don't know if you can do this. I don't know. Don't screw this up. That voice is usually there. That voice is gone in those moments. And you look at last night, the number of contributions coming from absolutely everybody on that Toronto Raptors team. I don't think that little voice was there for them. Not even close. Or maybe it was just things like superstitions among fans. We talked yesterday with Weaver from Country 104 after the Raptors had fallen behind 2-0 to Milwaukee. And after Matt Weaver had had a particularly stressful day, he decided, you know what, and he's one of the biggest Raptors fans. He may be the biggest Raptors fan here at Chorus Radio London. He decided to do something that he's now been doing on the day of every Toronto Raptors game since. I was ecstatic. I mean, it was unbelievable to say the least that we actually were able to find it because that payload survived out there uh, in the entire um, the entire summer, the fall, the winter, and then it survived the spring thaw and all the electronics were in like basically perfect condition. That was not Matt Weaver. I apologize for that. But I wanted to take you back to yesterday. I think I took you back even before yesterday. But essentially what Matt Weaver does is on that very stressful day, he takes his dogs and he goes for a walk. That's what he did. Down by the Thames River and he lets the dogs splash around a little bit. He sets the PVR 
and it records the first half hour of the game because by the time he gets back, the game has already started. And so he's been doing that very same thing now for five games in a row. Oh, and he comes home and he puts on a Kyle Lowry jersey. And he sits down and he watches the game, fast-forwarding through the first little bit because it's already PVR'd. And the Raptors have won every game since he started doing that. I'm not one to believe in coincidences. I'm not one to believe in superstition in any way. But this is starting to get weird. This is five games in a row that Weaver's been doing this. And five times in a row, the Toronto Raptors have won. So we'll wait to see what happens on Sunday. But that belief is there. I don't think they're hearing too many voices of, I don't know if you can do this. That's gone. On the show today, we are going to hear from all kinds of voices. Many, many, many voices. Matthew Svensson is going to join us in just a little bit. We talked uh, almost a year ago, if not more than a year ago, about some students at Western University. Remember, they were sending a balloon up into the old stratosphere and gathering information about microorganisms way up there. Well, that balloon's back. And they've actually been able to find it. And that wasn't a guarantee. They were hoping that a kind of a GPS tracker would help them out. And the GPS tracker failed. So they thought, you know what? We're never finding this thing ever. The balloon's back. They found it. And we're going to find out how it is in just a couple of minutes. And look at why even sending a high-altitude balloon up into the far reaches of our atmosphere is important. Why is that even a thing? This week, what has been a big topic of conversation? Beer and wine being available in corner stores and big box stores. Guess what? Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich is going to join us at 1.40, and we'll ask him all about that. So that's in about a half hour from now. And in conjunction with that, there are some concerns from people who battle every day against addiction. If you battle an alcohol addiction, one of the things that you deal with is having to see alcohol. And not just in commercials, but accessible alcohol. And Dean Anderson is somebody who has been in recovery and now is a certified addictions counselor. He's going to join us and talk about some of the challenges that will exist should alcohol, as the Ontario government plans to try to do, be made even more accessible in grocery stores, corner stores, big box stores, that sort of thing. So that's coming up. Chris Lozon is going to join us, bringing in his silver medal from the Special Olympics in floor hockey. This is his fourth medal. Tigger Gerard is going to be on the show today. Tigger was on Jeopardy a few years ago, and she'll take us behind the scenes. Again, this past week, some optimistic news, at least, about Alex Trebek and the fact that he is in near remission. He has stage four pancreatic cancer. And then, of course, we've got a potential record that could be set on Jeopardy by the latest guy who's going on a big run. Plus, we'll talk about a few other things along the way as well. So, jam-packed show. Thanks for joining us on a Friday. Next up, Matthew Svensson, PhD candidate from Western, on sending a balloon up into the stratosphere, losing sight of it, and then managing to get it back. And they did it with the help of deer and ham radio operators. Huh? That story's coming up. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. A Friday. Hopefully a happy Friday for you. Weekend weather, not too bad. Not too bad. We've got a number of charity events this weekend. 
We want to follow up on a story that we first covered about a year ago. A group of Western students had taken a high-altitude balloon and launched it, and it went 20 kilometers into space. And they were looking for what microbial life is like up there. Really? Yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. But you send a balloon up. Can you imagine? It would be like having a helium balloon and letting it go and then saying, you know, we're going to get that back someday, kids. You never want to tell your kids that because how many times has a helium balloon returned to you? I can't find the ones we leave in a bedroom. So they sent this thing up hoping they would be able to get it back, but there was no guarantee. Well, they've done that. Matthew Svensson joins us, Ph.D. candidate from the Department of Planetary Sciences and Earth Sciences at Western University. Matt, balloons are always a big hit from the time we're young kids. What was it like for you to finally get your hands on this particular balloon? I was ecstatic. I mean, it was unbelievable, to say the least, that we actually were able to find it because that payload survived out there uh, in the entire, um, the entire summer, the fall, the winter, and then it survived the spring thaw, and all the electronics were in like basically perfect condition, and all the data was 100% recoverable. So it was really amazing to actually find it at all. How rare would that even be? I mean, it would be one thing to find it, but you're talking about everything is 100% recoverable. Was that beyond any expectations you guys had? Yeah, well, we when, when uh, we lost the GPS signal uh, during the flight, um, we kind of had resigned ourselves to never seeing it again. We sent uh, several search parties out, and we had searched for it until we had no daylight left the day we launched. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we uh, never really thought we'd ever actually see it again. So actually finding it is not, thing, not something we've ever even considered. Okay, well, we'll talk about the discovery, where you actually found it in just a moment. We're talking with Matt Svensson, Ph.D. candidate in Earth Sciences at Western University. We're talking about a high-altitude balloon that had been created. So take us back to the beginning. What was the goal in sending a high-altitude balloon up into high altitude. Right. So um, our initial objective was to try and figure out uh, what kind of little microorganisms or what mic- microorganisms are living in the upper atmosphere. Right. Because these things are important uh, to everyday life because they're often associated with, with the spread of allergens and diseases and things like that. So it's important to get to know kind of what's in the atmosphere and what's living up there. Um, so that's kind of actually fairly understudied in the scientific literature. Um, so we're trying to initially trying to sample them, but we realized quickly with the timeline that we had set for ourselves, uh, that wouldn't be possible. So what we had settled for uh, was an, a, an experiment that involved measuring the, the UV radiation, uh, ozone levels, greenhouse gases, and CO2, and trying to kind of constrain the environment that these microorganisms would be living in, in, this, in the atmosphere and then use that to kind of construct a more informed hypothesis about what we would find in future missions when we actually went ahead and tried to sample these microbial aerosols. So up goes the high-altitude balloon. Now, you guys made sure and put a lot of safety precautions into this and really focused in on safety. Can you give us a picture of of how you did that? Yeah, so uh, when you actually go ahead and do a launch like this. You have to make sure that everybody who is in the immediate airspace is aware 
that you're doing it. Uh, so one of the things that one of the steps that we took was actually contacting uh, Nav Canada and uh, Transport Canada, making sure that um, the local uh, airports and the people who were using the airspace that we'd be in were aware that we were going to be flying in that airspace. We also had our payload approved before we actually flew it. Um, we had a strict mass budget to adhere to, and we, our balloon can only be of a certain volume. Um, so we made sure that everything was within the uh, appropriate parameters, and we gave a notification within 30 minutes of our launch, in addition to 48 hours before our launch, uh, as well as talking about uh, you know the payload contents and when we'd be flying uh, weeks in advance. So uh, there was plenty of notification that we would be doing this, where we'd be doing this, and uh, what the projected path of the balloon flight was going to be as well. How do you get a high-altitude balloon up into high-altitude? Where did you blast off from? Uh, so it was a uh, little campground called, called River Place Park a few hours north of London. Um, and essentially, we took this uh, latex balloon, filled it up with enough uh, helium in order to provide our 2.4-kilogram payload with enough lift to actually start going up. Um, and uh, then it travels uh, with the wind, with the prevailing winds, for a few kilometers, uh, 50 in this case. It traveled 50 kilometers laterally and 20 kilometers vertically into the air. And then it starts to pick up information that you are looking to study later. We're talking with Matt Svensson, Ph.D. candidate in Earth Sciences at Western University, and we are talking about a high-altitude balloon that has now been recovered. And if you're just joining us, Matt told us a few minutes ago this wasn't part of the game. They didn't necessarily think they would recover it. Not only did they do that, they recovered all of the data. It's 100% usable. So let's talk about the the search for this high-altitude balloon. You knew it went up. It lasted through all kinds of seasons, including winter. Uh, when did you get an idea that you may be able to recover it? Uh, just a couple, just about a week ago, actually. Um, so when we lost the GPS signal, we we couldn't really uh, we couldn't really we didn't know where it would be. We were looking in the ballpark area based on our prediction, um, but we had also put our contact information on the outside of the payload and you know said, uh, if found, please contact. And uh, one of the members of the London uh, Amateur Radio Club, who we worked closely with throughout the entire project, put their contact information on some of the internal components which somehow got dragged out, possibly by some deer. When uh, it was recovered, we heard that there was some deer picking at it. Um, so uh, there was a fellow, uh, Danny Giaro, who, uh, who found uh, our payload out, out in the field, and he contacted uh, Doug Elliott, who was uh, one of the ham radio guys we were working with, um, because he found the content information that was on one of the, these internal components that had gotten dragged out. Um, and so Doug actually drove out that day to go and pick up the payload, uh, drove it all the way back to London. Um, and then we started uh, analyzing the data uh, that day. So, so a lot of things had yeah. to go right for this to happen then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it had to be in a place where it wasn't going to, it wasn't in a topographic low, so it wasn't going to be soaked in water when it melted. Uh, it had to be in a place where it wasn't going to be exposed to a whole lot of wildlife activity. Um, and it had to survive that entire time without basically uh, taking on enough moisture to really damage it. 
when you talk about analyzing the data immediately, people always think, oh, okay, well, if they're analyzing the data, they can tell us exactly what they were looking for. How long is the data analysis process going to take in this case? Uh, this case is not so long because we essentially have uh, numbers uh, from the different uh, sensors that correlate with different timestamps and different altitudes. Uh, so it's basically just making a graph, an XY plot based on our two sets of numbers. Uh, so it shouldn't take us very long to actually plot the data. Uh, interpreting it is another story, and that's, that tends to be the thing that takes the most amount of time. So we're hoping to have it interpreted within a couple of weeks. And, and what, uh, what really sorts counts. of things are you interested to find out then? So we're interested in trying to figure out um, what kind of environment uh, the upper atmosphere is like from a microorganism perspective, right? Because there are these little uh, microorganisms that uh, live in the atmosphere, and we don't know what they are. We don't have a good idea of what they are, but we can try and get an idea of what kind of environment they have to deal with. So that's what our sensors on this particular experiment are trying to help us figure out. Well, this has been an amazing story to follow. It is incredible that you were able to get this balloon back, that the deer gave you a hand, that ham radio operators gave you a hand, and it'll be interesting to see what you come up with. Can we talk in a few weeks and, and discuss what that data looks like? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It'd be good to talk about how this actually complements how we're moving forward as well, because we're working with now the Canadian Space Agency and the Students for, Ex for the Exploration and Development of Space, which is said. Um, to launch another high-altitude balloon, which is run by the Canadian Space Agency, and we're having a payload on board that balloon that's actually going to sample these microbial aerosols in the atmosphere. So the two experiments actually complement each other very well, so it'd be definitely interesting to talk about it in the next couple of weeks. Let's do that. Matt, congratulations on the successes you've had so far, continued success in all of this. Well, uh, you know, just me and the rest of the team, there's a lot of people who did this, um, and I, we really couldn't have done it without them. When we talk about how many people, how big a group? Uh, so for this last one, there are maybe 12 people on board. Now we're pushing closer to 19. Um, so it's a fairly big group of people who are making all this possible. Matt, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you very much. Matt Svensson, PhD candidate from the Department of Earth Sciences at Western University. As Western has recouped something they sent into the atmosphere about a year ago, this uh, this is pretty pretty wild. I mean, it was May 29th, 2018 when this lifted off, and they got it back just shy of a year later. They'd lost the GPS. They got a call from somebody saying, hey, there's a weird kind of thing here, uh, and your name's on it. Deer had been picking at it. They dragged a piece of it out, and that's kind of what led to that contact information being visible. Absolutely crazy. And Dr. Oz, who is not the Dr. Oz from whatever show that is on TV. What is that, Dr. Phil? Is, he on, is that where Dr. Oz is? Is he from Oprah? I'm not sure. But the Dr. Oz from London, Ontario, Dr. Gordon Ozinski, who is at Western University, has said he's pretty excited about this. They want to see what is up there at the high end of the atmosphere. Maybe this helps allergy sufferers. In the end, that's one of the things that they were looking at. And, hey, if you live in southwestern Ontario and don't experience some kind of allergy issue, you are amazing. Because this is one of the worst places to live for allergy sufferers. Even just 
Even someone who's going to hardly be affected will be affected in southwestern Ontario. And a move to, like, Arizona to get away from that. That's one of the best places. This is one of the worst. So this might have far-reaching things. Plus, they're now involved with the Canadian Space Agency. We are going to talk with Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich in about 10 minutes from now. And we're going to talk about the sale of beer and wine in Ontario. But more than that, we're going to talk about going after this contract that the Liberals had signed. What is that... What does that mean? Why are they doing this? Why is this so important? Some of the things that we will ask Minister Yurik. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 1.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Mix of sun and cloud and 19 degrees. Councillor Paul Van Meerbergen, who defeated Virginia Ridley to reclaim his Ward 10 seat in the fall election, is the latest to say he will cut ties with Blackridge strategy. Amir Farahi of Blackridge has been named in court documents showing fake websites for Ridley and Councillor Maureen Cassidy have been registered in his name. Van Meerbergen tells 980 CFPL he has no connection to the fake websites and says he never engages in running down opponents or personality politics and that all his campaigns have been issues-based. Yesterday, Mayor Ed Holder released a statement confirming he's cutting ties with Blackridge, while Councillor Josh Morgan tweeted that he cut ties back in the fall when rumors first started circulating. Meantime, another former candidate says he's considering further legal action in a similar case. During his mayoral campaign, a fake website was created to look like Paul Pilato's own website. Pilato says whoever's behind it also created fake social media accounts to interact with Londoners, pretending to be him. He says he's already working to uncover those responsible and so far has found cell phone numbers and email addresses. Fire officials say the blaze at a vacant home on Colonel Talbot Road yesterday caused nearly half a million dollars in damage. Crews were called around 2.30 in the afternoon to the property between Littlewood and Decker Drives. Witnesses called 911 after spotting smoke. On scene, crews found smoke and flames coming from the home, which had its doors boarded up. Platoon Chief Sean Fitzgerald tells 980 CFPL it was a complex call because of the more rural setting and lack of hydrants. Water is shuttled by our two tankers that are 2,500 gallons of water each, and then it's dropped into our ported tanks at the road and then pumped up to the fire scene. It is a complex process, but we do train on that regularly. No one was hurt. Fitzgerald says they've determined the fire started in the garage, but because there was so much damage, they're not able to pinpoint an exact cause. Foreign Affairs Minister Christopher Freeland says U.S. President Donald Trump's surprise move to slap tariffs on Mexican imports is a border issue between those two countries. She says Canada will continue the process toward ratifying the new North American Free Trade Agreement. Analysts say Trump's move could put the trade deal on ice because it also needs to be ratified by the U.S. and Mexico to take effect. But Trump says the tariffs have nothing to do with trade and are being imposed to pressure Mexico to make more action to stop migrants from Central and South America from reaching the American border. You're listening to 980 CFPL. Coming up, we will talk with Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich. We're going to talk about one of the big topics from this week, and that is the move to get out from underneath the contract that was signed, what, a 10-year deal back when the Liberals were in power to keep the beer store selling beer. Now the Ontario Conservatives want to get that beer and wine into more convenience stores, other locations, spread it around a little bit more, put it into big box stores. So it's a little different than kind of privatizing everything because – 
the beer store would still exist. But what is this going to do? What's one of the biggest questions when something comes up? It doesn't even have to relate to alcohol sales. Is this going to affect the price of beer? And everybody gets concerned. And if the answer is no, all right, then fine, go ahead. Do whatever it is that you're doing. Tear up the roads, change the postal codes, but do it as long as it's not going to affect the price of beer, we'll all be okay, right? It's the weekend. So is this going to affect the price of beer? Well, that's a question that we are going to ask Minister York. We also have to look at contracts themselves because we've had some concern raised in this, and it was actually raised by NDP finance critic Sandy Shaw saying that she believes this shows the government and its agreements are not worth the paper they are written on. So what does that mean? And we'll put that in front of Minister Yurik as well. And we will look at just what this plan is and how they feel that this is going to be beneficial. If you want to get your thoughts in, we'll have time for that too. Is this a big deal, little deal? If it doesn't affect the price of beer, it's probably no deal at all. But then in about 40 minutes, we will get a different side of the story as we talk with Dean Anderson, certified addictions counselor, because we're going to look at kind of the the battle that everybody who is going through recovery from an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction, what they go through on a daily basis and what having things more accessible for some people might be just convenience and fantastic For people in recovery, it's a whole different story. So we'll look at that too. But next on London Live, Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich joins us to talk about sales of beer and wine in the province of Ontario. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Sale of beer, sale of wine. You go into the United States, it's a very different thing. It's available all over the place. Go to a party store. Go to a grocery store. Go to Meijer. One aisle has all kinds of Oreos. The next aisle has all kinds of alcohol. next aisle might have lawn tractors. There's everything. Well, Ontario is looking at making alcohol more accessible and getting away from a contract that was signed by the Liberal government when they were in power. Joining us right now to talk about the why, the how, the things that could play out, some of the other angles that we have come up with, is Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich. Minister Urich, your government has created quite a lot of conversation this week about where we are going to be able to buy beer and buy wine. Why don't we just begin by going back to the decision to even challenge the current contract? Well, certainly, uh uh, back in the last election, we had promised to expand uh, convenience and choice uh, with regards to uh, alcohol sales, and we're following through on that campaign promise. And unfortunately, back in 2015, Kathleen Wynne uh, signed a 10-year agreement giving multinational companies uh, a stranglehold, a monopoly on beer sales in this province. And uh, uh, we are working to end that contract and ensure that uh, people have more choice in this province. Minister Yurik, a lot of people will come down to the idea of, will this raise the price of beer? It's always a very popular question. And right now, when you look at the distribution system, there are a lot of arguments that say, because of the way it's handled by the beer store, because of the way wine is handled by the LCBO, distribution costs are very, very low. 
how do you do this, put it into corner stores, big box stores, and still keep those costs low? Well, we believe the competition in the marketplace will eventually drive the prices lower. However, you know, the beer store is still going to be in existence. The beer store is still going to have its distribution network in place. I think they'll still be a strong player in this field. But, I mean, it opened up avenues uh, for uh, new markets to be developed uh, with regards to distribution uh, or partnerships uh, that uh, uh, other private businesses might make with the beer store. So I think at the end of the day, you'll you'll see... Uh, uh, prices uh, actually decrease uh, as we increase competition. I mean, you're looking at convenience store as one option, but, you know, you got larger uh, businesses such as Costco or Walmart, who I'm sure would, would love to have an opportunity to expand their sales and, and utilize their distribution systems. We have seen other provinces go this way and privatize. If you go to Alberta, you drive around and you see Beerland, Beer World, Wine Haven, all of those kinds of things. Saskatchewan has kind of a hybrid. How much research has the government done in terms of how other provinces handle this? Well, we had uh, advisor Ken Hughes uh, uh, reveal a, po- a report to Minister Fideli. He's uh, something that he... He and his team has been uh, looking at uh, for some time. Um, we do have the expertise of the LCBO uh, to uh, uh, to look upon as well. And I and I think at the end of the day, as, as we open up uh, competition in the marketplace, um, you're going to see uh, uh, different ideas come forward and uh, give people the choice. I mean, the, the ultimate the consumer is going to decide what what survives in this marketplace. But as I said earlier, I, I think. Uh, uh, convenience stores will now be able to expand their businesses, hire more staff. The beer store will still uh, be a strong player in, in the marketplace. And then there's be others uh, joining the competition. Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urick joining us as we talk about making some changes and looking at how to get the sale of beer and wine into, as Minister Urick suggested, things like Costco, things like Walmart, grocery stores, convenience stores creating a number of other choices. We've already seen Opsu speak out against this. You had to expect that. How concerning is that, and, and how do you handle that? Well, I, you know, I think you got to remind people that the beer store is not a government-run entity. It's, it's run by three multinational corporations, uh, which has a, the entire control of the marketplace, which shuts out uh, Ontario companies. It shuts out choice. And and all we are doing is opening up the market to competition like any other jurisdiction, and we're going to ensure that Ontario businesses have a shot uh, of uh, providing jobs and providing choice for consumers. So, you know, some of the uh, stuff you're hearing in the media about 7,000 job losses, you know, I think that's preposterous. I think the beer store is a strong business model, and they're going to continue uh, to be a strong uh, player in this marketplace. They already have their stores set up. They have a distribution network. They're way ahead of the field. Um, we just want to bring choice uh, back into Ontario, and, and that's uh, one of the election promises we made, and we're going to fulfill that. The Ontario government is essentially a big corporation. You're talking about agreements with big corporations who operate the beer store. When you bring big corporations together, when you create legal challenges, you create big legal challenges. How much do you expect it to cost in order to actually get this done, to go up against these contracts? Well, you know, I, you know, I think, obviously, they're, uh, they're, they're talking about some, some form of... Uh, uh, pushback on this legislation, but you know, 
we're telling them that, you know, it's a bad sweetheart deal, specially made by Kathleen Wynne, the previous government, that's, that's tied down policy for uh, future governments for 10 years, and it's created that monopoly. I think, you know, you could, you could look at it another way. What I heard earlier is uh, if the PC government tore up all the wind turbines uh, and then wrote a contract with a corporation saying that we won't build wind turbines for the next 10 years and another government walks in, should they be held as well to that policy as well? Bad Bad contracts, um, you know, uh, shouldn't be accepted. There, it's uh, it, it's it's not good uh, choice for consumers. Uh, it it's leaving three multinational companies, global companies, uh, in charge of a monopoly in our province. And 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 Kathleen Wynne made a poor decision in that sweetheart deal, and that has to end. I guess when you look at at contracts on the whole, the Ontario government under Doug Ford has has talked about business in this province. We heard NDP finance critic Sandy Shaw say that this brings about a concern that it shows agreements with the government are, are not worth the paper they're they're written on. Any concern over that on your government's part? You know, I, I wouldn't say that. I think it it shows that uh, any bad uh, bad contracts that are signed is uh, not acceptable for the people of Ontario. And and this government's going to make uh, uh, good comp, uh, contracts with corporations. We're going to open up the marketplace so more businesses invest in this province, create more jobs. So, uh, no, I you know I there might be some concern, but at the end of the day, it's it's that bad contracts are not going to be accepted uh, uh, that were done from the previous government. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, we're at this stage, but uh, that sweetheart deal that Kathleen Wynne that gave the corporations a monopoly, uh, multinational corporations a monopoly in their province, is, is a bad deal for Ontarians. One of the big conversations everywhere in this province this week is whether or not we are going to see more accessibility of beer sales, wine sales in big box stores, in grocery stores, in convenience stores. We're talking right now with Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Yurick. Minister Yurick, one last thing, and that is the the topic that has come up that when you put this kind of thing, beer and wine, into more accessible places. Kids have more access to it. I don't know if that's something that uh, that has been discussed on your end. Or the other thing is, when you look at people who, who deal with substance abuse issues, that, that they have to create this barrier and that it's easier if everything's in the beer store, but all of a sudden, if you're picking up some Cheerios and you walk around the corner and, well, there's, there's that beer, there's that wine, that, that it's a concern for them... Uh, anything to to suggest that you could implement programs or, or look at something for people who are in those particular situations? Well, sure. I mean, the the Alcohol Gaming Commission of Ontario will be regulating, and they're they're pretty strict with their rules. Uh, convenience store operators uh, right now uh, have a have a great uh, uh, reputation and and track record of preventing sales of tobacco uh, to uh, to people under nineteen and. You know, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, when you when you when you take a look, uh, grocery stores are already selling beer in, in I guess your special cities. that got those licenses. Uh, there are convenience stores in rural and northern Ontario that became an agency store. So uh, this isn't new. This is what's happening across the entire country, other than Ontario. And uh, you know, it, it's time that uh, we we brought responsibility to people to have their choice and convenience and. Uh, and, and ensure that there are supports in, in place. And we, we do have that in Ontario, and we'll be heavily regulating uh, and strict penalties for anybody that's going to abuse those rules. Minister Yurick, thank you so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you very much.
Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich on sales of beer and wine in Ontario. If you want to weigh in on that, I'm I'm interested in a part of that conversation specifically in in listening to what Minister Urich had said. If you make a bad deal, in other words, if a government in power makes a bad deal, should you as the next government have to carry it out? And maybe there is no better example than the last provincial liberals who were accused of making a lot of bad deals, going all the way back even to Dalton McGuinty, that there were bad deals made. So should you, as the government that follows, have to live with those bad deals? It's a valid question. 519-643-2222. If you want to weigh in on whether this is a positive, whether you think it will raise the price of beer, or whether... You think a government has the right to say, yeah, that was a bad deal. It's 10 years long. The liberals were famous for doing that. Well, that'll keep us in power. Should you have to live with it? 519-643-2222. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It's been a topic of conversation this week. We just heard from Ontario Transportation Minister Jeff Urich on sale of beer and wine in Ontario, on getting rid of contracts that were signed by the Liberal government and looking at putting it into more convenience stores, into big box stores, things like that, much like they have in some rural areas now. How do you feel about that? And here's another question. If you make a bad deal, should the next government have to carry it out. 519-643-2222. Glenn, what do you think? Hey, Glenn. Hey. What do you think? Um, well, actually, in terms of what they're progressing, I think it has been a bad deal, but I think Minister York was a bit disingenuous. This has been a bad deal since Prohibition. Every government, <laughs> conservative and liberal, has just been repeatedly re-signing this, usually on a 10-year basis with these three multinational corporations before Wynn signed it, Mike Harris was the last one to sign this. So this has been something ongoing, and usually it's stuck through. I, I'm i not a huge fan of the Doug Ford government, I'll admit that right now, but uh, I'll give them guts for wanting to cancel this. My only fear is what it's going to cost us. Do you believe it will affect the price of alcohol? Because that's one of the arguments that, hey, we've got good distribution costs right now because you're dealing with essentially the, the same company over and over again, and they feel that that helps to keep costs low, whereas if you're going in all directions, that'll raise the price. What do you think? In terms of the big manufacturers, it might, I don't know, I can't see the price raise, rising up significantly. I'm hoping, though, that in terms of local breweries, the crop brewers of Ontario, within their own communities, making agreements with their local distributors, whether it's a grocery store or variety store, the price might actually come down because they could actually make local agreements. You might not get access to a beer that's brewed up in North Bay down here in London, St. Thomas area, um, but I'm hoping it'll, you know, give a little bit of an advantage to people like Forked River and uh, Railway City and Andersons. Good point. Glenn, thanks for the call. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. 519-643-2222. Let's go to Grant. Grant, how do you feel about this? Uh, well, I'm a... Uh... I just, uh, the price of alcohol in the United States and Canada is night and day. And, uh, you can buy alcohol anywhere in the United States, convenience stores or, uh, drug stores even. And, uh, the problem, I, I, I don't, I, I wish the media would shift towards the taxes that we pay 
Well, we pay hefty, hefty taxes, and that's one of the reasons why we do pay more than the U.S. Right. So there should be access to alcohol everywhere with <laughs> with how much we pay. It's just I, I wish people would focus on what the government's doing with all the tax money that they get from the sales of alcohol. I mean, uh, I, I'd like to. I don't. I don't have an issue with the accessibility, but uh, I just wish uh, people would focus on the taxes that we pay. I think it's ridiculous. So, so would you Thanks like to see? My- would you like to see more transparency on where exactly that money's going? Is that what you mean? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. And uh, you know, they are making these deals without the public knowledge, and uh, I, I just think the uh, the what they're taking in. Um, as a revenue source for whatever they're they're getting is it's ridiculous. So thanks for taking my call, Mike. Hey, thanks for making the call. Five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. Time for one more, Marilyn. It's great to hear from you on a Friday. Oh, thank you, dear. Well, I don't drink beer. I don't like the smell of it, and I don't like the taste of it. But I don't think a new government should have to um, pay the piper for. Uh, the past government's, um, uh, what should I say, poor choices. Sure, sure. Now, as Glenn had pointed out, these kind of things go back even before the McGinty oh, yes. government, the the Wynn government. They go back oh, years it, and years. Yes, I've been hearing about it. a very valid it. point. But well, that's right. I liked how Jeff Yorick said that, and because we could, that could translate into a few other deals that were done by the Liberals not too long ago. Marilyn, you have a great weekend. Oh, you too, dear. You and your family and dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking with you. You know that. There's no dog yet, but hey, I I don't know. I might walk home tonight, and and there might be one in the doorway. You know, I never know. <laughs> I live in an unpredictable household. Marilyn, That's thanks. Bye, <laughs> dear. Bye, bye. We'll take a break for news. If you still want to talk about this, we do have some time on the other side. This is Global News Radio 980 CFBL. If you're just joining us on London Live, welcome to the show. This hour. Tigger Gerard's going to join us. Tigger was on Jeopardy not too long ago, and she's going to take us as behind the scenes as we can get on a competition that people play in their homes, sometimes on a nightly basis. We are also going to meet Chris Lozon, and he's bringing by his silver medal from the Special Olympics in floor hockey. And we want to continue our conversation that started before the break about beer and wine in big box stores, convenience stores, what the Ontario government is looking at doing. And in doing so, they have to create legislation that would kind of get rid of an agreement that has been passed down and passed down by government after government, but was signed once again by the Liberal government not too long ago when they were in power. Hank, thank you very much for hanging on. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I find the whole thing kind of silly. I I really don't understand Mr. Ford's uh, huge interest in trying to make beer and wine more convenient and less expensive. It seems like there's more bigger priorities the government should be working on. I find it really kind of silly when he campaigned on the idea of a buck of beer. You know, what people need is a break on other things. Why didn't he campaign on, say, loaf of bread for a dollar or a dozen eggs for a dollar? I just, I just find that misplaced priorities that he's really pushing this issue. 
there are those those big things that catch attention, and this seems to be one of them. The buck of beer was another one of them, but you're right. There are a lot of things, and Bob raised this on London Live one day, that you know a lot of the administrative stuff that does matter, that will make a difference, maybe isn't sexy enough, and maybe that's our fault in the media, that, that we've got we to gotta dig into that kind of stuff, even though it would be perceived as, as boring to go through or boring to listen to. That's the important stuff. It's kind of the, the tightrope that you walk. Well, like I said, I just find it a, a misplaced priority that the government is doing so much work on this issue and there's important issues that should be solved, and I don't see him moving forward with that in the same way. Hank, appreciate you hanging on. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. Bye. Have a great day. 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Got an email from Eugene, and he says, almost every battle this government has fought has to do with bad deals made in the previous 15 years. In particular, where the many pre-election deals that were given by the win liberals were happened when they were pretty sure they were sunk. This beer deal was one of them. Eugene says, and I like this point, there should be a rule that for six months before elections, the sitting government should not make large multi-year funding awards. That's probably a decent ask. I mean, it... it enhances the lame duck nature of certain governments. And I think it was pretty clear that the Wynn government was as lame duck as we've seen in this province for a while over the last few months of their power. But to say, yeah, you you can't sign big, you can't, because what it comes down to is perking your friends. And you can't do that or perking your supporters. You, that's not how to govern. It's how sure things are done, but that's not right. I don't know how you fight against it. You would need legislation, just like Eugene described. Let's look at this from a different angle. We talked with Transportation Minister Jeff Urich right at the end of our interview about people who are dealing with addictions, people in recovery, and what seeing beer and wine does to them on a daily basis if they happen across it. Dean Anderson is a certified addictions counselor. He's also someone who is in recovery himself. And we're lucky enough to have him joining us now. Dean, thanks for being here on London Live. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. We're at a a pretty interesting time in Ontario in that we have had little wine stores popping up in some grocery stores. We have had access made available for beer and wine in some I guess, some locations outside of the beer store. When you saw the government's latest decision that will kind of open the doors, what was your reaction? My, my initial reaction was that there's then going to be an, an increase in accessibility. And it was, it was not so much about seeing a long-term impact or an increase in the addiction numbers. It was more about the people that are already existing in recovery that are trying to put in barriers in place to prevent them from picking up. And, and so um, as part of my job every day is, is trying to teach people how to put those barriers in place and, and be safe around it. And uh, the impact, I think, that's going to be the greatest is just that impulse. The more that we make it accessible, the more it's, the, the government starts to normalize it where it's in every corner store, then we start saying, that's okay to do it. Uh, any impacts it might have on substance abuse uh, or addiction in the future, I mean, we probably won't see any results for many, many, many years, what that might look like. 
And those numbers also must be pretty difficult to come by for us to say, okay, here's the data. Let's look at the impact this has had. It, in itself, addiction and substance abuse is, is shame-based. So people don't report it. You're not going to work every day saying, I've got a drinking problem. You're not going around and uh, you know putting it on your census that you've got a drinking problem. So these numbers aren't reported. The only way that they're reported is through people who self-disclose or go to addiction treatment or end up in the hospital for substance abuse. Uh, but those are, are very few. You know? When you talk about creating those barriers, give us a sense mm-hmm. of, of what people can do in order to create those barriers or what people who are dealing with recovery or, or a substance abuse problem still are trying to do. Well, it's about daily planning. It's about changing routine. It's figuring out different ways of doing things and uh, setting things, uh, friendships, social media, uh, things that you're going to. So, for instance, you know, um, I would go golfing, and I would always associate drinking with golfing. So instead of going uh, golfing in the middle of the afternoon with a bunch of guys who drink, I would go and get 6 a.m. tea times with people who didn't, and then that would prevent me from wanting to drink because it's 6 o'clock in the morning, right? So it's putting those simple little things in place to still have the things that you enjoy in life and, and, and be able to not feel the need that you have to drink. So one of the things that happened recently was in the last couple of years is finding beer in the grocery stores. There's certain ones that then I would tell my clients to say, let's avoid the beer, let's avoid the grocery stores and go grocery shop somewhere else, the places that don't have it. When we start putting it in corner stores or having it in every place, that just puts it that much harder when I have to drive by four on my way home. Dean Anderson joining us, certified addictions counselor. Dean, can you describe the the impulse and and what that feels like to see something that you're trying to avoid, something that you are dealing with, and yet there it is right in front of you, there it is as accessible as it's going to be? Well, the, the impulse is it's a mental obsession. It's, it's having something stuck in your mind that, you know, I, I can't do or deal without this. I mean, a big part of the substance abuse process is the inability to cope. So, a lot of times when things are going well and there's not any concerns in life, they can walk right past it and not think a thing. But that day when the guy cuts you off in traffic or your girlfriend decides to break up with you and you're standing next to uh, a liquor store, your impulse in those emotional situations is, is to say, you know what, I need to curb this feeling. I need to turn something off or I need to go in this direction. From, from an addiction standpoint, I mean, the impulse is then to, hey, let's, turn off these emotions and whatever's closest by is what's going to help me do it. For some people, it's you know, a TV or a video game or, a, or their cell phone. For people in substance abuse or alcoholism, that's it's alcohol. Right? With you yourself, what made you make the decision to make some changes in your life? The changes in my life came from a, a huge uh, shift, uh, what they some people would refer to as a rock bottom or some... Uh, it was an extreme event that happened in my life with a negative impact uh, on my family and on my friends and my uh, my children and finances. And all of those things happening at once gave me a huge uh, emotional response to those things that then triggered to say, hey, you know what, something's got to change, right? So it's the idea of, of staying the same, being more fearful than changing. And then you say, okay, something's got to give. And... Once you say that, how much of of the battle begins there? Well, it's a state of mind. You'll hear many people say that 
substance substance abuse that they have to have the willingness to do so, and there's there's some truth to that. And it all starts at that point, but most people don't see it until there's hindsight in place. They'll say, oh, I, I, I... Part of the process every day is waking up and saying, I have to change, I have to stop, something has got to give, right? So you say it so many times, you stop believing yourself. So you don't see it until there's hindsight where you can look back and say, oh, I can see that pinnacle moment, I can see that time when it changed because... Clearly, it works because here I am now. There's some sort of length and sobriety to prove that. Uh, but in the moment, there's no there's no defining uh, character. I mean, some people say that you know they have uh, something that opens up the sky and the light shines down, and then there they are saying, "I, I had this this awakening or this epiphany in the moment." Those are very few and far between, and that's part of the problem with that mentality and in recovery is people are waiting for this moment to just everything change in that second and it doesn't happen that way for most so then people get lost in the addiction because they're waiting for this thing to come along and shift their life for them and it doesn't always happen that way is it still day by day for you so yes and no day, day by day the part of addiction recovery is self-care so it's the biggest piece of it is taking care of yourself learning self-love monitoring mental health monitoring your well-being. So yes, you need to do those things at every moment of every day, but that's everyone. That's not just people in, in addiction recovery. So I, I can say, yes, it's day-to-day, but when it comes to the actual thought of substance use, no, absolutely not. It doesn't, it doesn't really phase you when you have a, a stressful situation. Now you have other coping, coping mechanisms or other things in place that you work towards or use to, to keep yourself doing well and in the right space. So no, it's, I wouldn't say day-to-day. And I guess in, in closing out, if, if we look at where the province is going, you mentioned just the, the idea of, of creating those barriers. Does this just come down to you've got more challenges and, and you know, more discussion about those barriers? More challenges, more discussions. I think the, the, the problem that the province might have is just looking at and monitoring the increase in the impulsive behaviors as a whole, not just with substance use and addiction, but when people have accessibility, I mean, there's more likely to have drinking and driving, violent crimes, you know, one of the highest intake or the highest intake in local hospitals is from substance use. You know, people falling down, people getting in accidents, bar fights, that sort of thing. Uh, I wonder, you know, where that's going to come out in the end. And then the people that are, are victims of these crimes, you know, some of them turn to substance use as a result as well. So who knows? For me, for me, yes, it's just a, it's, it's just dusting those uh, those barriers for my clients. Yeah. Well, Dean, we really appreciate you providing this perspective for us. Thanks so much for the time today. It's my my pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much. Dean Anderson, certified addictions counselor, looking at beer and wine in liquor stores. Many people would see it complete convenience. He sees it as being a bit of another challenge. Thanks to Dean for being here. We'll take a break. Up next, Chris Lozon is just outside the studios. He is going to be inside the studios, and he has brought with uh, or brought with him his silver medal earned at the Special Olympics in floor hockey as part of the London Blades. That is the fourth medal that they have picked up. We'll talk about the Special Olympics, the opening ceremonies, which had uh, something interesting that kind of caught national attention. We'll talk about that and what it took to win a silver medal this time around for the London Blades at the Special Olympics. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
The Special Olympics movement celebrated a big milestone this year, just a couple of weeks ago, as the Special Olympics took place in Ontario. And that was the 50th year of the movement. And that meant that the city of Toronto welcomed over 2,000 athletes, 500 coaches, 1,000 volunteers, and went through competitions over four days in which five sports were contested, basketball, bocce, floor hockey among those, uh, traditional soccer and unified soccer they also had, and it winds up being an amazing event. Athletics, of course. So those were the five disciplines, and we had great London representation, including our good buddy Chris Lozon, who was there, not for the first time, not for the second time, brought home a fourth medal, now three silvers and one gold, and Chris joins us in the studio with the medal. This is one of those times where you wish radio had more pictures. I will tweet out a picture of Chris and I in just a couple of minutes. We'll take a picture after we finish the interview, and I'll tweet that out so that you can get a look at the medal itself, because, Chris, that's pretty impressive. First off, welcome to the studio. Congratulations. Fourth medal, three silver, one bronze. Still looking for that elusive gold. It, it it happens. We like when we go into the division and the round robin. We're always the team to beat. <laughs> <laughs> we we dominate the round robin, and then we know we're the team to beat. And that's, sometimes it, it doesn't. Yeah, you bring yeah. it down to one game, and who knows what's going to happen, right? That's yeah. just sports. You've got to tell us a little bit about the entire experience, because anyone who has never seen the opening ceremonies at the Special Olympics. It is one of the most enthusiastic, passionate opening ceremonies I think we've got anywhere. What's it like to be in the middle of that? It was it was quite to see, you know, waiting for our team to be called. There's like 2,000 athletes and the, about 1,000 people watching live, for, like in the audience. And then this year was a national television, so it, it was it was awesome. And one of the headlines wound up dealing with Ontario Premier Doug Ford as he stepped up. Yeah, he he got kind of booed, and it, it hit national news. But that's I guess that's how it goes sometimes. Exactly. Well, in terms of of those ceremonies, going from that spot into the games themselves, what's it like just to be there and to be a part of this? Because you've done it a few times in a few different spots. Oh, it's just amazing. You know, you make you you make memories and meet new people and. It's just great. Come home with a medal around your neck, which seems to be a pretty regular occurrence for yeah. the London Blazers. Yeah, so we're, we're always happy. Let's talk a little bit about something else that happened this year. It was the 50th anniversary of floor hockey at the Games, so they did a little something special. What did they do? Um, they brought in different teams around the, the country, and they brought in a team from Chicago where... 50 years ago, it was the very first time in Chicago games that they had floor hockey. So they brought in a Toronto team to go there 50 years ago to play one game of hockey. How amazing is that? Now, were you guys able to watch any of the competition um, that the, yeah. the high schools were having? Uh, some of them, like, they had different sports for the high school kids there. So we watched the floor hockey events because it was all in the same venue. But, yeah, it was good. 
Do you get a chance to watch many of the other athletes take part in their uh, events? No. No? no so we, we had one venue, and that's where we stayed all day, <laughs> every day. And ultimately, you make it to the gold medal game. Describe what the round robin was like first. How did that go for you? Uh, well, we dominated. We got uh, four goals scored on us to our 15, 19 goals forward, and... Went to the gold medal game. We had a few little mistakes that we couldn't recover, and they banged in five, and that's how it goes sometimes. That is it. At the same time, you win silver, and any athlete will say, hey, when you're in a gold medal game, you want to get gold. But eventually, you look down at that medal, and you go, you know what? This is pretty special. Have you hit that moment yet? Yeah, when when we were up on the podium, you know, it's like I always wanted to win gold, but silver's good for me, and we we were happy about that. Do you have more years left in the career? Are you back at this next uh, time? We are, yeah, we're going to go try to get back at it. The next provincials are in four years, so we're hopefully qualified for that one more time. All right. Well, there's still a shot that you could complete the collection. Three silvers and a bronze. Go and get that gold. But at the same time, the experience, once in a lifetime kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's great. Well, Chris, we really appreciate it. Congratulations once again. Thanks for spending some time with us on London Live. You're welcome. Thank Chris, you. Thanks, Chris. Chris Lozon. Right now, what we'll do is actually, give me a sec. Chris, we'll go outside and we'll take a picture of that silver medal. Don't go anywhere. I want to get a picture of that. I'll tweet that out at Stubbs980. We have a number of things still to come on the show, but again, want to recognize all the athletes taking part in the 50th anniversary of the Special Olympics movement, which just wrapped up about a week ago in Toronto. So lots of medals won, lots of medals being brought home all over the place. Uh, We still have another competition to talk about. If you look at what has been happening on Jeopardy, we have had one individual who has now passed the $2 million mark in earnings. But we've had another story that has really been weaving its way through this year in Jeopardy, which becomes that that international institution, North American institution, that competition that you look at and you say, how do they know that? Well, Alex Trebek and his battle with cancer has become public. This past week, we did hear some optimistic news at least that Alex Trebek's cancer is in near remission. We are going to speak with Tigger Gerard, who was on Jeopardy as a contestant a few years ago. And we'll get Tigger Gerard to take us back to making it to the show because it's one thing to be able to sit back in your living room and say, uh, what is orange? What is Puerto Rico? It's another whole thing to actually get to the show. She'll, she'll describe us or describe to us exactly how she was able to get that done. And Tigger is an amazing personality, as her name suggests. Get ready. That comes up after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. What is fish paste? I don't know if that's ever been an answer on Jeopardy. It probably wouldn't have been one that I got right. How about you? You sit back and test yourself every once in a while? Maybe go online? Well, if you actually can answer 
a majority of those questions. People start saying, you know, maybe you should give this a shot. Maybe, maybe you should try to be on Jeopardy. There's been a song like that, right? Weird Al Yankovic, I think, turned something into I Lost on Jeopardy. Well, we want to talk with somebody who has actually done it because this has been quite a year for Jeopardy. If you look at Alex Trebek and what has become his public battle with cancer and stage four pancreatic cancer that earlier this week we found out was in partial remission, at least. I mean, he's in he's in a big fight. But Alex Trebek is the kind of guy who's got all kinds of support. He's got all kinds of faith. And he's somebody who will do what he can to get through that fight. You also have James Holzhauer, who has passed $2 million and is nearing the record for most money ever won on Jeopardy. So that's been a big story as well. But what does it take to actually get to Jeopardy. How do you actually take the knowledge that you have and turn it into an appearance on the show? It would seem like the chances would be way out there. Too small, too tiny to even try. Well, just a second. One of London's own has been on Jeopardy in the past, and we are lucky enough to have her with us right now on London Live. Please welcome Tigger Gerard to the show. Tigger, how does one decide, you know what, I think I could be on Jeopardy? Uh, what it took was my wonderful husband, who um, watched me watching the show night after night after night. I've been watching it since I was a kid, actually, and I've always loved it. Um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, the host himself. We'll we'll talk about Alex in uh, in a moment. I've always loved watching the show and playing along. And uh, Brian was the one who um, noticed the first online contestant test years ago. They used to do a contestant search. Um, you'd have to send in postcards, and if they chose your name, you'd be invited to an audition uh, or an interview at one of the local places. They came to London one year, and I submitted a whole bunch of postcards, but they were never chosen. And then uh, a number of years ago, probably close to 15, Brian noticed uh, that they were doing online contestant searches. So I took the first online test they offered, and uh, a short time later, they invited me to come for an actual in-person audition, which I had to turn down, unfortunately, because it coincided with our honeymoon. Uh, but fortunately, they gave me another chance a couple of months later, and uh, so we went to New York for the uh, for the audition. How incredible yeah. is it that you had so many things not work out, not be able to do this, and yet it's it still happened. I know. Apparently, they they uh, they have thousands and thousands of people um, take the uh, the entrance test, and of those, they will invite perhaps. I don't know, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred or so people to an in-person audition, and of those, they only need about four hundred contestants in any shooting season. So a lot of it is the luck of the draw. They never tell you how well you did. They don't tell you your score in the uh, um, in the entrance test. But uh, if you're in the top, whatever, then they will invite you to come. And at that audition, you do another. 
um, another test, uh, written 50 questions, and then they um, they go away and score the test, and then everyone who is in the room gets called up in groups of three to play a mock game. And at that point, they're looking for someone who is going to be good television, you know, someone who, who won't freeze under pressure or blurt out inappropriate words because it is a family show, after all. Um, and uh, so once you... Um, get through that wonderful afternoon. It's about three hours or so. Um, they tell you you're in the contestant pool for uh, 12 to 18 months. And if they don't call you to come in and appear as a contestant on the show uh, within that time, then you're able to try again uh, the next time it rolls around. Now, we're talking with Tigger Gerard, who has appeared on Jeopardy, London Zone, somebody else putting this city on the map. <laughs> Tigger, are you somebody that in school didn't have to study much? Everything just kind of, you'd look at a page and, yeah, I got this, that sort of thing? Up to a certain point, in the, um, so through, yes, through most of my, my school career, but there's a drawback to that, which is that you don't develop good study habits. Uh, along the way. So that kind of hit me in the back when I was in the middle of high school. But yes, I had always loved uh, learning new things, and I've got the kind of mind that that hangs on to trivia. And the other thing that that helps is kind of lateral connections. If If you can make lateral connections between two seemingly disparate or distinct uh, bits of information and find a way to connect them. That's really helpful as well. So you get through the online, you get through the in-person audition, you go into yes. the pool. Did you get that magical phone call one day or oh, was it an email? I, I, yes, I will never forget it. My audition was at the very end of September in New York and I got the call uh, first week in January and it was a phone call from one of the contestant coordinators um, saying, we would like you to come and be a contestant on Jeopardy. Are you available? Can you come to Los Angeles? And he named a date. It was uh, early February, because uh, I remember I was there. We, we flew down a few days ahead of time to get over the jet lag. We were sitting on the beach on Super Bowl Sunday. Shoes off, leaning against a palm tree. It was just glorious. You sound almost like you were able to treat this as, as the start of a vacation, but how, how fast is your mind churning in order to get ready for what you were actually there for? Well, from in, in the uh, three and a half, four months between the audition and the time I actually got the call, I was in um, intense training. So instead of just watching the game every night, I would stand behind my uh, my sofa with a great big fat ballpoint in my hand. So that was my signaling device. And I was in game mode. So I was watching the show as though I were a contestant there, trying to ring in and um, seeing what it feels like. And that's advice that I had gotten from one of the one of the best books that I read. I read everything I could get my hands on about Jeopardy, uh, the show itself, what it's like to be a contestant, the very best one, and I'd recommend this book to anybody considering going on Jeopardy or anyone who is interested just in the phenomenon of the show itself. The book is called Prisoner of Trebekistan by Bob Harris, who (laughs) was uh, a five-time champion, and then he went on to the Tournament of Champions. It is incredibly helpful, very funny, 
and just chock full of, of suggestions and things to do to help yourself prepare. And it boils down to get yourself into the mode. So it's, it's not just about having this storehouse of trivia in your head. You need to be able to recall it in an instant, and you need pretty fast reflexes so that your signaling device rings in ahead of the other two contestants on the show. So there's, there's a lot of things uh, rolling into that one thing. So the more uh, rehearsal you can do, the, uh, the better. Tigger Gerard joining us, contestant on Jeopardy from London a few years ago as we kind of paint the picture of what it is like behind the scenes. We haven't even talked about Alex Trebek yet, but you're at the mercy of the categories. When the categories pop up, you could do all this preparation. What if it's little-known monarchs from the 15th century? What, how, do you, how do you get ready for just about anything that could pop up on that board? You, there are certain categories that you know they're going to call on. So I studied up on American presidents. Um, Brian made me a series of flashcards. So I was able to, to get that knowledge that uh, most American contestants would have picked up you know, in school along the way. Um, geography is another one, world capitals, um, the, Olymp- uh, the Oscars, rather. There are certain categories you know they're going to call on. The rest of it is the look of the draw. You do not know what categories are, are going to be in your particular game. Come to that, you don't even know which game you're going to be called for on a given day. They tape a week's worth of shows um, on a day, and they tape Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So they do uh, three shows in the morning, break for lunch, and then other two shows, so it's Thursday, Friday. So you don't know in advance. They call your, your name just you know seconds before they're ready to tape the next game. So other than just getting up on your general knowledge and those certain categories, there's really not a lot you can do. I mean, in my case, if they'd given me a whole category about football, I would have been totally lost. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and as it stood, what were your categories like? Do you remember any in particular? It was a pretty broad range. There was, uh, in the first Jeopardy round, there was a category, two categories, beanie and Cecil. And the first one was all about different kinds of beans, coffee beans, lima beans, which uh, are not my favorite. And the Cecil category was famous people named Cecil. Um, (laughs) There was one political lingo, and we all got stumped on stump speech. What is a stump speech? Um... Those are the only ones that popped to mind right away. Um, There was one category about um, chemical elements. Uh, There was another one about um, audio, sound, um, which actually helped me because my father had been in radio in the first half of his career, so I was familiar with a lot. That was, again, luck of the draw because you just never know. Amazing. Let's talk about Alex Trebek, who this week got some optimistic news. He's a guy who's been a game show host forever. used to host Pitfall here in Canada on Global. Yes. And then, of course, went on to great fame with Jeopardy. How much interaction do you get with Alex Trebek? What you see on uh, television is all you get. Uh, We are kept very carefully sequestered from Alex. So the only time we have a connection with him is during the gameplay and that little 20, 30-second interview um, after the first commercial break. And uh, then, of course, he comes around at one point um, so that they can take a formal photo. Uh, You get your picture taken with Alex, and uh, they send you this lovely 
uh, picture frame, and um, then they send you the uh, the photo as well. So I've got that uh, as a memento. But other than that, you're kept very, very sequestered. Um, so that, unfortunately, was the only chance. Oh, except for um, the lineup at the end when they while they roll credits and uh, the contestant coordinators had me stand right beside uh, Alex. So that was lovely. We got about 30 minutes or 30 seconds of um, essentially, you know, just brief social chat. Um, I will say that he is one of the most extraordinary hosts I have ever seen. He's completely unflappable. He's able to remain uh, positive and optimistic and supportive without playing any kind of favorites. He's incredibly fair and balanced. He has a terrific sense of humor. He's very, very relaxed, and he's bright enough that he could be a contestant um, on the game. He's a very, very, very good host. And how much does that help with the fact that your heart has to be beating really, really fast, and yet he's got (laughs) that kind of a demeanor handling everything? It is. Um, it's so important and it is contagious. And I don't know if the other two of my, my fellow contestants at the time felt it the same way I did, but he helped me relax and focus on playing the game. He's very, very good at it. Well, amazing experience. Is it one you talk about much or just when people like me give you a call? (laughs) I am happy to talk about my Jeopardy experience anytime. Um, it's one of the best days of my entire life. I'm so glad I had that experience uh, and with Alex Trebek. Um, and the other thing that I will say is anyone else who, like me, watches the show, loves the show, do try, try the online uh, contestant uh, test. Try the online test. Um, it's worth it just for fun. If they do call you, you can graciously say, no, thank you. I don't want to go and do it. It is the best experience ever. And anyone from London who is listening and considering it, if you get to be a contestant on the show, um, get in touch with me through the radio station. Uh, I'm available for a bit of coaching before you go down to tape your show. Well done. You won't regret it. (laughs) And never forget to put your feet in the sand before you go out there. Absolutely, it does help. Tigger, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. You are welcome, Mike. Thanks. Tigger Gerard, Jeopardy contestant, one of London's own, and one of a kind. We'll take a break. More to come on London Live next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. New episode and final episode of this season is up for Around the OHL, and there is some definite London content on it. It is a podcast that takes you around the OHL every week. Former London Knight George Burnett and London native Isaac Ratcliffe are featured this week. George Burnett's the head coach and GM of the OHL champion Guelph Storm. And here's a little snippet from George as he talks about the excitement of the run the Storm went on, but also talks about the fact that it wasn't like they knew what was going to happen. You're never quite sure. I mean, uh, we we were, uh, you know, when you look at the London series, uh, uh, it very easily could have gone uh, four straight. Um, we were fortunate to win game four, um, absolutely, and, and hung on in game five. So it, uh, it kind of snowballed a little bit from there. But uh, 
Um, you know, it, it wasn't a master plan to make as many moves as we did. We'd added a couple of kids earlier in the season with Hanley and Camiso, uh, who were good, solid veteran guys as overage players, and, and uh, you know, things uh, went as they did. We're talking with George Burnett, head coach and general manager of the Guelph Storm. George, down 3 nothing to London, down 3-1 to Saginaw, down 2 nothing to Ottawa. What exactly would you say to your team in order to give them that hope that, hey, you know, no one's ever done this before, but uh, don't worry about that. We're going to be the ones to do it. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure there's any special message. I think as a, as a group with the amount of uh, uh, leadership that we had, uh, you know, Raddy was our captain, um, you know, Snar, uh, Samarukov, uh, uh, Hillis, that, that group was our leadership group, but the, the guys that came in, uh, you know, Hanley was a part of that for sure, but the guys that we, that, that did come in, that, uh, Enwistle and Suzuki were both captains of their teams, uh, <clears throat> Phillips was a, uh, I think he wore a letter in Owen Sound, there was, there was a group there that, um, didn't need to have a letter on their shoulder to, to lead and keep, Keep guys on a, uh, I think, calm and and, uh, uh, and and settle each other down, settle me down when I got too excited. Uh, you know, I, I think it was just a, a group that that uh, kind of chipped away at things and, and saw some positives. And and um, you know, I think when I look at most of those series, they were uh, game fives were key games where we went on the road and and uh, against London and, and Saginaw and, and were. Uh, fortunate enough to find a way to come up with some pretty good efforts and even Ottawa we won game five as well in their building and uh, to give us a chance to come back to, to play at home in game six so uh, um, you uh, uh, you know I, I think more more just uh, calm mature poise uh, kind of keep uh, keep things uh, period of time shift at a time and not look too far in advance and, and uh, uh, things things snowballed and and, uh, and turned out in our favor. That is George Burnett from Around the OHL. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite shows. It's available now. We'll close out London Live next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Thanks again to everybody who has been a part of London Live today. Matthew Svensson, Transportation Minister Jeff Urich, Dean Anderson, Chris Lozon, Tigger Gerard. You just heard from George Burnett. We are out of time for the week. Do enjoy the weekend. Get out and take advantage of what hopefully will be breaks of good weather. London Live brought to you by courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. Thanks to Kelly Wong. News is on the way next. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.